Welcome, everyone, to another edition of JAS Unplugged, the official podcast of the Yellow Journal. I am your host, Corey Smith. I am a fifth-year orthopedic resident at Prisma Health in Greenville, South Carolina, and I am now the former chair of the executive committee of the Resident Assembly of the Academy. So thank you for joining us once again this month. I think we have a really cool, interesting episode for you and some interesting articles to review having to do with some new technology in orthopedics. We're first going to start with an interview with Dr. Ellie Kamara, who's a hip and knee surgeon in the Bronx, New York, who wrote a really interesting article on the evolution of the treatment of femoral neck fractures titled Treatment of Valgus Impacted and Non-Displaced Femoral Neck Fragility Fractures in the Elderly, where we really will talk about kind of how the treatment patterns and how really the literature supporting those treatment patterns has evolved over the past several years and kind of where we're headed in how we can best treat these elderly patients with these type fractures. We'll also review two research articles from the June 15th edition of the Yellow Journal. The first of those is titled, A Tensionable Suture-Based Cerclage is an Alternative to Stainless Steel Cerclage Fixation for Stabilization of a Humeral Osteotomy During Shoulder Arthroplasty from Dr. Patrick Denard and colleagues. We'll also review an article titled Dual Mobility Articulations in Femoral Neck Fractures, a systematic review of the literature and meta-analysis of the outcomes. So I think some really interesting stuff for you this month. However, before we go any further, as we do every month, we want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Modernizing Medicine. Helping orthopedic practices fight burnout and connect with patients, Modernizing Medicine offers an orthopedic-specific suite of healthcare IT solutions, including the number one ortho-specific EHR system, EMA, practice management, billing services, analytics, patient engagement tools like telehealth, and more. To see a two-minute demo, please visit modmed.com orthopod. That's modmed.com orthopod. Also this month, sadly, this will be the final episode that I'll be hosting JOS Unplugged. I'm sure it's not sadly for some of you, as you've tired of my South Alabama accent. However, I'll be moving out of the country and I'll be passing off the hosting duties of JAS Unplugged to my colleague who is certainly qualified, if not much more qualified than myself, and that will be Dr. Stephanie Pierce, who is finishing her fellowship training at the Stedman Clinic in Vail, Colorado, and will be moving on to a job as a pediatric sports medicine orthopedic surgeon We've tried to make it the practice over the past few years that the JAS Unplugged podcast is really driven by the residents involved in the academy. And Stephanie, as the previous vice president of the executive committee of the resident assembly, has certainly been involved as a resident and fellow with multiple organizations, including the academy, the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society, and numerous others. And Stephanie will bring her view as a pediatric sports medicine orthopedist, but also as a really well-rounded, really smart orthopedic surgeon will bring her view and opinions to the podcast, and I think you all will really enjoy her. Also, before I go, I have a long list of people that I need to thank who have been more responsible than myself, certainly for making this podcast as successful as it has been for the past year. I want to thank everyone involved with the Academy as well as the Yellow Journal, including Dr. William Levine, Dr. Pete Rose, the editor of the Yellow Journal, Kate Yadell, who certainly has kept me on time and organized over the past year, as well as Kristen Erickson, and also Hans Kolsch, who without his assistance and support making this podcast certainly would not be possible. 
I also want to thank the entire team at Walters Kluwer and Learner's Digest, including Rebecca McTavish, Drew Ann Martin, and Ashar Ratnayaka, who have been absolutely invaluable in making this podcast as successful as it has been and hopefully useful in your practice. I know every month this comes out and it sounds seamless and great, but ultimately behind the scenes, there is a gigantic team of audio engineers and editors and everybody at Learner's Digest and Walters Kluwer's who makes this podcast really what it is. And I want to thank all of them for making me sound useful and hopefully somewhat intelligent each month. And finally, I want to thank you as the listener for tuning in each month and really making this what has become in the past few years one of the most successful and fastest growing medical journal podcast in the world. Really, without you, we're not anything and going nowhere. So thanks to everybody involved. And now that I'm done rambling, let's get to the episode. All right. Well, we're excited to welcome on this month, Dr. Ellie Kamara from Albert Einstein in the Bronx, who wrote a really fantastic article with his co-authors this month titled, Treatment of Valgus Impacted and Non-Displaced Femoral Neck Fragility Fractures in the Elderly. And I think this is something that at some point, whether you're a resident or a fellow or you've been in practice 25 years and you're still taking call, this is something that all of us are going to encounter. And the interesting thing I thought about this is that usually things that we've been doing this long don't evolve. We kind of do what we do and we find what works and we stick to it. But this is an interesting area in that the care of these patients has seemed to evolve over the past couple of years. And Dr. Kamara and his colleagues have done a great job summarizing this for us. So Dr. Kamara, thanks for coming on the podcast with us. Thanks so much for having me here, Corey. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll just jump right into it. Before we go too far, I want to kind of do as we usually do and give you a chance to introduce yourself to the listeners and give them a little bit of background about you and your training and what you're doing now in New York. So I am a hip and knee surgeon at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine at the Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx in New York City. I'm currently in my third year of practice. I'm originally from the New York area, and I did my medical school at Einstein and training in Manhattan at Lenox Hill Hospital. I did an obligatory tour on the West Coast for my fellowship in adult reconstruction at University of California in San Francisco. It was really, though, during my time at Lenox Hill that I came up with this idea of a paper focused solely on valgus-impacted and non-displaced femoral neck fractures. As a resident, starting in 2012, I religiously read and reread the 2008 JOS articles on hip fractures that was published out of NYU by Drs. Eagle and Zuckerman, probably still required reading for most residents to this day. At Lenox, we treated many hip fractures as any residency program, and these fractures interested me because I always knew what would happen if it was an intertrochanteric fracture. I knew what would happen if it was a displaced femoral neck fracture. But for these types of fractures, the valgus impacted and the non-displaced ones, I noted the different treatment preferences by attendings. They varied from in-situ pinnings to hemiarthroplasties and even total hip arthroplasties. Each surgeon quoted different studies and numbers to support their treatment algorithm with the best care of their patients in mind. The most commonly cited reasons for the different treatment options were the patient's fracture pattern, their age, their physical exam, and their activity level. When I was working with one of my mentors at UCSF, I mentioned this idea to Dr. Vale, who encouraged me to continue exploring it. 
As I did more research in the literature, I realized that a review on this topic could help guide surgeons in offering the best treatment for our patients, especially with the new topics on posterior tilt and the results from the FAITH trial and a really good recent randomized control trial from Norway. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point you bring up because as a resident myself, I think a lot of my confusion around this issue is related to exactly what you talk about, which is how we differ in the treatment of the non-displaced fractures, right? And so I think you guys do a really nice job and we're going to take for granted a little bit here at the beginning of the interview that our listeners are familiar with the anatomy and the classification of these fractures. If you're not, say you're a a medical student or a, a younger resident and you're listening and you're not familiar with the Powell's classification or the anatomy, there is a nice summary at the beginning of Dr. Kamara's paper. We always want to point the listeners back to the journal to read. And so I think they do a nice job, but we'll kind of skip past that. But you do talk about how, yeah, we there's a lot of variation in how we treat these. One of the things that you didn't touch on that I do want to briefly touch, because I think you did a nice job not only discussing it, but including it in the paper, because I think it, it bears, especially in an elderly population, considering, which is non-operative treatment. So if you could just give us a couple thoughts on what you think the role of non-operative treatment with these fractures is. So generally speaking, non-operative treatment is really reserved for patients who have a high risk of intraoperative mortality. I'm not mentioning post-operative mortality. I'm specifically focused on intraoperative mortality. Femoral neck fractures, they have a high one-year mortality. The mortality of these injuries is upwards of 35% with higher rates in men. The main reason that we do these surgeries is to increase patients' post-operative mobility. That's the one thing that we can do as orthopedists to be a significant intervention to improve their mortality. With the goal of mobility in mind, sometimes a patient can't get through the operating room safely. If after discussion with your geriatrician and anesthesiologist, the team agrees that there is no safe way to get the patient through this event safely, non-operative treatment can be performed. The patient, or more commonly in these scenarios, the patient's family, should be informed of the main risks of non-operative treatment, which can include secondary displacement of the fracture and avascular necrosis of the hip, and sometimes bed rest-related complications as well. So this is really currently reserved only for patients with a high risk of perioperative mortality. Another issue that you touch on, which I don't know that you specifically discussed in the article, but I know is really crucial to the management of these patients, which is you know a team-based approach. So I think you really even if there's somebody you're taking to the operating room, these are people that you want to bring anesthesia in to talk about what the best mode of anesthesia is. You want to talk about geriatrics coming in to manage these patients with narcotics and with post-operative complications and you know delirium and things like that in the hospital because these are things we're not as well trained to manage as orthopedists, and you want to make sure you have a team. And so I think especially when you talk about are you going to elect non-operative treatment for a patient, those are all really important points. So We'll kind of get to the meat of the paper here, which I think is really discussing fixation and fixation versus arthroplasty and kind of how the literature points either way. So I really liked how you guys summarized the existing literature on, you know, screws versus a hip screw side plate construct and indications for each and then kind of complications associated with each of them. So if you could just kind of give the listeners particularly those who maybe are at a place, whether it's internationally or even places in the United States where maybe 
they're only using screws or they're only using a side plate and they're kind of, you know, listening to this, thinking about how their practice is going to change. If you could just kind of summarize what the literature talks about fixation options for these non-displaced or minimally displaced fractures. So overall, the data supports the use of either a sliding hip screw or multiple Kinsella's screws. In the United States, the pattern for the multiple Kinsella's screws is an inverted triangle. You want to have your inverted triangle above or at the level of the lesser trochanter to reduce any risk of subtrochanteric fractures. Generally speaking, in the United States, a sliding hip screw tends to be used for a more basy cervical fracture pattern. The reason that you want to do an inverted triangle is to try to achieve fixation in that thick bone at the inferior aspect of the femoral neck and the calcar femorale. The FAITH trial, which was recently published, demonstrated equivalent revision rates between these fixation types, which was a really important finding. They did also report a slightly higher rate of osteonecrosis, though, with the sliding hip screw device, but this did not lead to increased revisions. So it was a sort of form of asymptomatic avascular necrosis, but it's important to note that the follow-up at that point was only two years. So the jury might still be out that there is a higher risk of avascular necrosis with a sliding hip screw, and you may want to consider using multiple cancella screws pending the future results from the FAITH trial. Got it. So I guess with that in mind, with that risk of osteonecrosis, I know we're talking about elderly patients here, but if you have a patient on the younger end of that spectrum that, say, is 65 or 70, but physiologically is 60 or 65, and you're debating between multiple cancella screws or a sliding hip screw, do you feel like the literature is strong enough at this point to push us towards three screws instead of a hip screw? I think at this point, the literature can support the use of either device, and providers can choose what they feel is most appropriate for their patient and for the fracture pattern in their hands. I think the literature can support either intervention. I always try to achieve the most I can for the, my patients with the minimal amount of intervention. So that would go you know, from the office, you know, maximizing non-operative treatment before doing an operative intervention. And that would go in the OR, trying to do the most minimally invasive surgery possible to achieve the most optimal outcome. So in this case, the outcome that we're trying to achieve is post-operative mobility. So if you can achieve that with multiple Kinsella screws in a percutaneous fashion, the literature has shown that this does have a lower amount of blood loss during the surgery. That is fantastic. I love how you say that you're trying to achieve the maximum result with the minimal intervention. So bang for your buck. I'm, I'm going to steal that from you in the future, if you don't mind. I think another thing I wanted to touch on that I think that you discuss, which is not really commonly discussed, is risk factors for these complications. So you talked a little bit about preoperative albumin levels and bone mineral density. But if you could just kind of discuss for us kind of what the literature talks about some of the risk factors for these complications that we see and maybe how these relate to revision procedures after either a hip screw or multiple cancella screw procedure. So with regards to bone quality, osteoporosis is commonly cited as a risk factor for treatment failure. That has been shown in some retrospective studies in the literature, showing that there was a higher rate of secondary displacement in patients that have osteoporosis compared to patients that do not have osteoporosis. It's important to remember, though, that, as I mentioned earlier, that is retrospective cohort evidence. A better study that was done 
by Dr. Weiberg did not find any association with fixation failure and low bone mineral density, which was defined as a T-score below 2.5 standard deviations in a series of 140 patients who were treated with multiple Kinsella screws. So I would say that is the best evidence that we have that osteoporosis may not actually be as important as we think. Yeah, that's surprising to me, you know, because I found the same reaction to your review of the literature that osteoporosis isn't maybe as involved with failure of this as we thought. However, it seems that posterior tilt, which of these minimally or non-displaced fractures, which I think maybe tended to be a trend or discussion point among orthopedists, has actually borne out in the literature to have real impact on the management of these fractures. So if you could just talk to us about what the literature says about how we manage these fractures related to the posterior tilt on the initial injury radiographs. I would say posterior tilt was probably the real spark that led to this article being published. These are the most interesting new studies to me, the most interesting new findings. Posterior tilt is a measure that I think the first author that discussed it was Dr. Palm out of Denmark. It's a measure of the axis of the femoral head off the femoral neck on a lateral radiograph. The first paper that was published on it showed that a posterior tilt of greater than 20 degrees was a risk factor for failure of fixation. It's hypothesized that this higher tilt can affect the healing of the fracture due to shear forces on the fracture site, or possibly that this tilt can damage the medial femoral circumflex artery, given that it inserts on the back of the neck, leading to avascular necrosis of the hip. This finding has been challenged by one or two articles out there. But overall, the evidence seems to be in favor that posterior tilt does appear to be a risk factor for avascular necrosis. We should particularly highlight a secondary analysis of the FAITH trial that was done by Dr. Slobogen and JBJS in 2019. Although this was level four evidence, it was a very well-designed study and it confirmed that the patients with posterior tilt greater than 20 degrees had a higher risk of avascular necrosis, leading to revision surgery. As with all x-ray measurements, there can be some difficulty establishing consistency, but this is an excellent quantitative measure that we as surgeons can use to help counsel our patients. Yeah, and I think that that, to me, as you mentioned, is probably the most interesting takeaway from this paper. We talk about this at my center quite a bit, actually, about using this posterior tilt to guide the decision of fixation versus arthroplasty. And I know that I'll point the listeners back to the figure in your paper, figure three, where you actually give that as a decision point in the treatment algorithm of treating these, whether it's internal fixation or arthroplasty for you. So as we talk about internal fixation versus arthroplasty, I know this is where I find a lot of the fascinating points in this discussion, which is kind of how the treatment for these has changed over time and the trends and how these are changing. So as we talk about the treatment evolving, if you could just kind of walk the listeners through what the evolution of the literature discussing internal fixation versus primary arthroplasty for these fractures kind of has been. So I agree. The main question is whether these patients should be treated with a primary arthroplasty or internal fixation. If our goal as orthopedic surgeons is to improve postoperative mobility, thereby decreasing mortality, we either have to have that bone heal or we got to replace it with an implant. The fractures that we're discussing today, they do have a lower risk of damage to the blood supply, thereby giving the bone a chance to heal. That's why with these non-displaced fractures, we consider doing internal fixation, whereas with the displaced fractures, the blood supply is compromised and the default is to treat them with an arthroplasty. 
The data, though, historically shows us that even with these non-displaced and valgus-impacted femoral neck fractures, the risk of treatment failure can range from 10 to 30%. And if you think about it, there's almost no other area in orthopedics or in medicine in general that doctors tolerate treatment failures of this magnitude, especially with such a prevalent condition like hip fractures. If we could figure out who these patients are, if we could identify the different risk factors, and that's where I think posterior tilt comes in really handy, then maybe they would benefit from initial treatment with an arthroplasty. That is a fantastic point because I actually had the exact thought when I was reading through this paper of, you know, we, we all know the FAITH trial and we all know the results, but if I said on this podcast that there was an implant that most orthopedic surgeons were using for ankle fractures with a 30% failure rate, there would be people that would call for that implant to be recalled. <laughs> you know what I mean? It is, it's a really interesting discussion that we've known the results of that for so long, yet we continue to either think we can improve it because our surgical skills are better or our selection is better. However, we know from the literature that arthroplasty shows decreased rates of revision and that patients you know, have equal, if not improved, functional outcomes. So I'm curious at this point, beyond posterior tilt, just what your overall gestalt of where the literature points as far as fixation versus arthroplasty as a primary procedure in these elderly patients, where that points for you at the current date? So basically prior to 2019, the majority of the studies were level three and four evidence, as I mentioned earlier, limited to retrospective cohort studies, comparing the results of internal fixation and arthroplasty. There was minimal or no randomization. So again, it was really hard to remove the selection bias effect in these studies. Overall, they mostly tended to report a higher revision rate with internal fixation, so a higher failure rate. And then there were variable effects on patient mortality and also variable effects on patient mobility. Some of the studies out of Norway, they showed that multiple cancellous screws worked better than hemiarthroplasty. Then they had another study that showed that hemiarthroplasty worked better than multiple cancellous screws. And the same with the mortality. But the one thing that really is consistent across all of these studies is that there is a higher revision rate with internal fixation compared to hemiarthroplasty. In 2019, Dr. Dolotowski out of, I believe it was Norway, they published what I consider a real landmark randomized control trial comparing screw fixation versus hemiarthroplasty for this specific non-displaced and valgus-impacted femoral neck fractures. Their primary outcome for that study was the Harris HIP score. So they were trying to look at patients' postoperative mobility. They didn't find any difference, which if you think about it, is consistent with previous retrospective cohort studies. But what they did find was that hemiarthroplasty was associated with improved mobility if you look at it as the timed up and go test. And there were significantly fewer major reoperations in the hemiarthroplasty group versus the multiple cancellous screw group. Of note also, they didn't find any statistically significant difference in mortality. And this was a great study with two years of follow-up. That is a really great point, not only related to revisions, but also to mortality, which is, you know, you think multiple cancellous screws is a smaller surgery, maybe less blood loss than an arthroplasty procedure. So maybe you're going to see a difference in morbidity and mortality, which they didn't see, but they did see a decreased revision surgery rate. So, you know, a lot of these elderly patients their family or the patient tells you, you know, all they want is they just want the last surgery first. You know, they just 
they just want to be done and moved on from this and you know be mobile and comfortable and, and able to do what they can do without having to worry about having another surgery. So it seems to me that the literature points towards that if you know you're going to perform fixation, there's no difference between a hip screw and screws. But if it's an elderly patient, you know, it's fair to tell them that if they want their last surgery first, that an arthroplasty procedure is probably more safely that procedure. Would, would you say that that's a correct conclusion to come to at this point based on the literature? Based off the literature, I think we have to be really careful if we're going to go down that route. For example, I treat a lot of knee arthritis, okay? People come to my clinic, they have a normal knee x-ray. I get an MRI, the MRI shows a medial meniscus tear, but guess what? Even though their x-ray is normal and their joint space is intact, the MRI shows that there's severe cartilage loss. So then I'm talking to the patient, okay, about non-operative treatment for a meniscus tear, you know, injections, physical therapy, and they fail all of that. But then I'm looking at their MRI and they're not a good candidate for an arthroscopy because they have arthritis already. So then I'm thinking, okay, maybe I have to do a partial knee replacement on them. But then I look at their BMI and their BMI is above, you know, 30 or 40, and they're not a good candidate for a partial knee replacement. So you can go from someone that has a normal standing AP x-ray of the knee, chasing the data, chasing the MRI and going all the way from a non-operative treatment from a meniscus tear to a total knee replacement. If you simply go algorithmically step by step, I don't think we can ever really stop thinking and we can say, you know, this person is perfect for a hemiarthroplasty. This person is perfect for multiple cancellous screws. And I think that example sort of illustrates that point. The goal is post-operative mobility. If that can be achieved with multiple cancellous screws, that's great. If it can be achieved with hemiarthroplasty, that's great. I think it's important to counsel the patients and tell them about the risk factors. But at the end of the day, you know, they're scared, they're nervous, their family's nervous. And the default, at least in my practice, is always, well, doc, what would you do? And my default when I see these types of patients is I look at the x-ray and I look at the posterior tilt because that has been probably the most consistent thing that has been shown to be associated with fixation failure. And I think that's a good next step in the future because this randomized control trial from Dr. Tolotowski's group really showed that there's still some work to be done and figuring out who would benefit from a primary arthroplasty versus multiple cancellous screws. They showed that multiple cancellous screws works. And I really hope that the takeaway point is not that hemiarthroplasty is the right answer for everyone, but by taking the different data, by taking the different studies, by looking at the x-ray, looking at the, the patient factors, the medical history, that it'll help orthopedists improve outcomes for these patients. That is a beautiful way to summarize it here as we're kind of running out of time. I think the way you put it is fantastic, which is we're just presenting what the literature tells us as far as patient outcomes. I think you did a nice job answering what was going to be my last question about where we're headed in the future with this research about determining how we can continue to improve these outcomes. But ultimately, we're always going to be surgeons and it's always people caring for people and you have to stop and take everything into account, not just the literature when you're making these decisions. And so I think you you do a really nice job kind of putting a bow on this. And hopefully for everybody listening who takes care of these injuries, you know, our goal was not to make gray into black or white, I think, because this is going to be a gray issue for a really long time, if not forever. But I, hopefully that this summary of the literature that Dr. Kamara provided can kind of help elucidate 
you know, some of the tough decisions that you have to make when it comes to caring for these patients, which can be a difficult population. So, Dr. Kamara, thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you for, you know, kind of giving some guidance to all of our listeners as well as myself. And thank you for your time. Corey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I also would like to acknowledge my co-authors, Drs. Vail and Zvi. Dr. Vail's guidance was invaluable during this process, and I couldn't have gotten through the final steps without Dr. Zvi's help. He's one of our residents here. So thank you to both of them. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So the first article we're going to review this month is from the June 15th edition of the Yellow Journal titled, A Tensionable Suture-Based Cerclage is an Alternative to Stainless Steel Cerclage Fixation for Stabilization of a Humeral Osteotomy During Shoulder Arthroplasty. This is from Dr. Patrick Denard and colleagues, and I think was a really interesting research article because as we all know, the rate of shoulder arthroplasty around the United States and around the world is going up, and as our population lives longer, inevitably there's going to be increasing numbers of revision procedures as well as increasing number of periprosthetic humerus fractures we see with these arthroplasty procedures. And so fixation of either osteotomies for revision procedures or fractures is usually done with wire or cables that are made of stainless steel. However, in recent years, there's been some development with these suture-based cerclage fixation devices to hopefully give easier handling, not provide as much radiographic interference, and also decrease any risk of metallosis from the wires, as well as, I'm sure all of us have seen wires or cables in these elderly patients that can really cut into the bone and sacrifice your fixation. So the purpose of this study was to compare one of these suture-based cerclage fixation devices to a stainless steel wire cerclage. So there were two parts to this study. In the first part of the study, there were two semicircular pieces of metal that were put together using either stainless steel wire cerclage or a single or double loop tape cerclage, which was the suture device. They were then distracted using a tensioning device to see what the load to failure was with the wires or with the suture. In the second part, this was actually a cadaveric humeri that had an osteotomy performed on the humerus and then was secured either with a stainless steel wire or a double-looped suture cerclage device. Subsequently, a metal wedge was introduced into the humerus to simulate the stem of a shoulder arthroplasty. So in part one, load to two millimeter displacement of the semicircular tube was significantly higher in the double-looped suture construct than the stainless steel wire. Also in part two, they noted that 20 millimeter subsidence of the stem was higher for the double-loop suture cerclage device compared with the stainless steel wire device. However, this was not a significant difference. However, gap displacement at 20 millimeters of subsidence was significantly lower with the suture cerclage double-loop device compared to the stainless steel wire device. There was also higher load to failure with the suture device that was double-looped compared with the stainless steel wire device. So the overall takeaway from this, according to the authors, is that a double-loop suture cerclage device has a higher load to failure and trends towards lower gap displacement with a humeral osteotomy or fracture compared with a stainless steel wire. So therefore, these may be viable alternatives for fixation of either periprosthetic humerus fractures or humeral osteotomies for revision procedures for shoulder arthroplasty moving forward. The next article we'll review is from the June 15th edition of the Yellow Journal as well, also investigating new technology that hopefully can improve patient outcomes titled Dual Mobility Articulations in Femoral Neck Fractures. 
a systematic review of the literature and meta-analysis of outcomes from Dr. Kevin Albanese and colleagues. So as we all know, the trend towards total hip arthroplasty after femoral neck fractures has increased across the country, and dual mobility articulations have been a particular interest due to the theoretical decreased risk of dislocation and not having to worry as much about instability as we know that these femoral neck fracture patients are increased risk for instability after an arthroplasty procedure. So the goal of these authors was to do a systematic review of the literature on studies that either use dual mobility total hips alone and studies that included a comparison of total hip arthroplasty or hemiarthroplasty to a dual mobility hip. The outcomes of their interest were postoperative dislocation, revision, and revision surgery rates. They did subgroup analyses, and for comparative studies, they analyzed the differences in outcomes using a random effects model of relative risks. Overall, the authors identified 18 studies that met the inclusion criteria and were then included in their analysis. They had 11 studies that were non-comparative, only looking at dual mobility hips, and found the cumulative incidence of dislocation to be 1.2% when dual mobility hips were used alone. They then ran the subgroup analyses that we spoke of of seven comparative studies and found that there was a relative risk of dislocation using dual mobility that was 59% less than hemiarthroplasty and 83% less than conventional total hip arthroplasty. They also found that dual mobility compared favorably in terms of revision surgery and revision rates to hemiarthroplasty, but there wasn't enough quality evidence to comment on revision rates of dual mobility hips compared to conventional total hips in patients with femoral neck fractures. So overall, I think this is kind of trending towards where we're needing to go with dual mobility hips in the femoral neck fracture population, which is to indeed prove through these level three and four studies that are available using randomized controlled trials and systematic reviews such as this study to prove that outcomes are indeed better and that the theoretical improvement in instability actually is better and then we'll also just need to follow these patients over time to see how it changes the revision profile and how it changes a possible conversion surgery with a dual mobility articulation in place. But overall, shows that dual mobility hips do seem to, in early studies, have decreased dislocation rates compared to conventional total hips and hemiarthroplasty in femoral neck fracture patients. Well, that is all we have for you this month, and that is all I'm going to have for you. Thank you so much for everyone who has listened, everyone who has reached out with kind words, encouragement, feedback for the podcast. Thank you so much again to all of our team at The Yellow Journal, at Walters Kluwer, and at Learner's Digest who have really invested in this podcast and made it what it is today. Hopefully, you'll continue to tune into j Unplugged with Dr. Pierce and continue to be on the lookout for more content from the Academy that hopefully we can continue to educate and push the field of orthopedic surgery forward and continue to be successful. So thank you so much for listening and signing off. I'm your host, Corey Smith. Everybody take care.